So um, a, a number of the families that are out of town today um, are my golfing families, but some of us in this room golf, right? Um, so I have a confession to make this morning. Uh, it is that I kind of like to watch golf on TV. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, not everyone likes that. I see faces, you know, saying, yeah, I like that. And others saying, no, not at all. I, I kind of like to watch golf, which in reality, let me just say, I don't think anyone really watches golf. I like to have golf on the TV while I'm in the room, right? And every once in a while, you look up. And um, here's the thing. Um, when I golf, uh, what I experience is nothing like what I see on TV, so when uh, there, there's a big turn, tournament on right now, the Arnold Palmer um, Invitational Tournament right now, and I saw a little bit, bit of it the other day, and here's what happens. The guys, these professional golfers, come out to the golf course uh, like two hours ahead of their round, and they hit balls on the driving range, and they uh, practice their putting, and their coach is often there, and their wife is there holding their baby and cheering for them, right? All these things that don't happen when I go golfing, right? Um, and then they get out on the first hole, and these these guys, I mean, like some sort of Greek god, you know, uh, they they bend their bodies in ways that's absolutely impossible, and they launch this ball straight down the middle of a driveway, 300-something yards, and, and I just don't get it. See, when I golf, it's a totally different experience. So here's what happens. You sign up for a tee time at 3.06. You know, it's always some random specific number that you have to be there, and you are squealing into the parking lot at 3.03, right? I mean, you are supposed to be on the tee blocks, and you are getting there last minute because you're just coming from work. And so you rush down to the tee blocks. Maybe you're buddies that are golfing with you. Maybe they're rushing in at the same time, or maybe uh, they got there ahead of time and you feel even worse because you're holding them up at this point, right? So you rush to the tee blocks and you hurry out there with your club and realize you don't have a ball and you realize you don't have a tee and someone hands you one and you reel back and you hit this ball and immediately it starts turning right in the air. And, uh, and it does what should be impossible. The ball turns 90 degrees in the air, right? And, and it crashes into a house off the side of your course. And, um, and within 30 seconds, someone walks out the back door, and they cross their arms, and they glare at you. And so you take the high road, which is drive the far side around the fairway, pretend like it didn't happen, go up to your buddy's ball, and drop one there, and hit it. And this is not a, like a personal experience. I mean, I'm just saying, this is kind of generally what happens when you golf. It's not like this has ever happened twice in one week. I mean, so... Um, so yeah, I mean, when I golf, man, it's a, it's a totally different experience than what I see on TV. And today, Jesus is uh, continuing to work on us. We'll talk about the backstory in a minute. Today, Jesus is continuing to work on his disciples, his followers, of what it looks like to be a part of this kingdom, what it looks like to be a follower. And so often, what, what they expected and what they hoped would be the case is just not playing out in their lives. It's not looking like it was supposed to. So let's read our text. We'll pray over it, and we'll engage it. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verse 46 today. Luke 9, 46. It says this, An argument started among the disciples as to whom, as to which of them uh, would be the greatest. Uh, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Master said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. 
do not stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against us is for us. What an interesting, fascinating, and kind of quirky pairing of passages. Let's pray over it before we engage it. Father, we thank you for this time this morning that we can um, explore your word, and I pray for your wisdom and your guidance in all of our lives, that we can hear from you this morning, Father, that we can understand what you have for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this argument has ensued amongst Jesus' closest followers. Um, and, uh, and the backstory is important to, to how we get here. For some time we've been studying in the Gospel of Luke, we've been exploring this man Jesus who from his birth people said something special is happening, something different is taking place here. And so um, he's healing people and he's raising people from the dead and thousands of people are following him. And he has this closest group of 12 apostles and every once in a while, they try frequently, every once in a while they're actually able to get away from the crowds. And last week we looked at, at a uh, Peter's Confession is what it's called here in, in Luke chapter 9. You might want to look back and, and listen to that because this Luke chapter 9 was a pivotal point. If you didn't make it, listen to this one because it's a pivotal point in, um, in Jesus' ministry and in people's perception of who he is. Because for a long time, Jesus, Jesus is sitting there praying with his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? Notice he didn't ask the, what do people think of me? Do they like me? We talked about that last week. He, he, he asked an identity question. Who do people say that I am? And, um, and they say, oh, well, people say this and people say that. And Jesus says, okay, great. And he looks him in the eye and he says, now, who do you say that I am? Jesus asks his followers, so who do you believe that I am? And Peter's the one who, to speak up and say, you are the Messiah. You are the Savior. You are the Christ. You are our hope. Right, And so something pivotal had t- has taken place. For the first time, Jesus is identified as the Savior. For, for hundreds of years, the Israelites have been in exile. They've been in bondage under Babylon um, and now under Rome. Uh, they are, uh, they're not a free nation any longer, and they are waiting for their Savior to come and rescue their nation. And, uh, and, and, and they're expecting him on some level. And Jesus shows up, and everyone says that could not be him. Because uh, he's not winning battles, and he's not taking back our nation. He's not authoritative and domineering. No, he's totally different than the king that we expected to come and rescue our nation. And, um, and, and so people are asking, who could this be then? And so Jesus asks them, who do you think I am? And, and they answer. He says, you're right. And then this is the crazy part, and this is, this is where we go into this week's text. He says, now don't tell anyone. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, and Jesus says, don't tell anyone. And it's like, why, why, would, why would we not tell everyone about this? And there is a reality in this moment that though the disciples know the right answer, they have yet to be reshaped by an understanding of what the Messiah means. They have no clue who Jesus is and how and why he is the savior of the nation. They're still expecting a king. And if they went out proclaiming to all the villages, the Messiah here is here, our savior has come, then they would quite easily rally an army to rebel against Rome. And Jesus says, this is not my mission. And so today he challenges their understandings. They're walking down the road shortly after their realization, I think this is him. They're saying, I think the Savior has come, the Messiah has come, and they're having an argument of who would be the greatest in the kingdom, right? I think this is fascinating. When's the last time you had an argument um, just about how great you are? 
When's the last time you argued with someone? Say, no way, I am way better than you, right? Maybe in sports or something, maybe on the golf course. That does that happens out there. Uh, but like in real life, you, you just don't argue about those sorts of things. Unless you're one of the disciples thinking a king has come to Israel and, and thinking that a king, a reign is coming about. And, and they're, they're arguing over, no, I'm going to sit at his right hand and I'm going to help rule. And the other one's like, no, I just want to be the cupbearer so that I get to taste the wine before. For him every time, right? And they're arguing over these positions. They're saying, no, like, like we want positions of authority in this new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. You see, they want to be great in this new kingdom. And here's the irony that Jesus is going to address. Greatness is in store for Jesus' followers, but not on the terms that the world expected, not on the terms that the Israelite people expected. Um, you know, I I think uh, Webster uh, has a has a fascinating definition of uh, of of uh, of fame or of of greatness. It says it's the fact of getting or achieving wealth, respect, or fame. Yeah. So Webster says that that greatness is the fact of getting or achieving wealth, respect, or fame. And Jesus is going to say, not a bit. Jesus is going to redefine their understanding. So in verse 47, he calls, his, um, he calls a child to him. And he has a child stand there, and he says to, to his followers, he says, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you, he is the greatest. Jesus has taken and turned upside down their understanding of what greatness or Messiah might be. And we can imagine like with so many of these revolutionary teachings, they don't get it quite yet. I think it's fair to assume that in this room, uh, each of us, myself absolutely included, is continuing to struggle with what exactly does this mean, Jesus? Right? Because when he takes and turns our cultural norms upside down, when so many of us have been striving for more things and more success and more prestige and more people patting us on the back, and Jesus takes and he turns these cultural norms and expectations upside down, we're left asking, so Jesus, what does that mean? What does it mean? I think it's important to realize in this passage that Jesus takes a child, um, and, and children in the first century um, were not respected and adored like children today. Um, now, I get that children aren't always respected and adored today either, but culturally, they had a very different view of children. I mean, in tw- until 12 years old, um, they were baggage. At 12, if they could earn their keep, they become a part of a family business and they become productive, but it was totally a different view of, of children, um, of women, of people of other nationalities, right? I mean, on so many levels in the first century, um, uh, culture just operated differently than we perceive it today, than, than we perceive. And so he takes a child, and to them, they might not have even noticed this kid had been nearby, because kids did not play a part in adult conversations. Kids weren't, weren't a part. They didn't get to dance at the back of the church during worship, right? I love that. I love that. Like, we want, we want kids to express themselves. We respect children on a different level. But Jesus takes a child, a, a marginalized person in their society. Marginalized simply means someone on the outskirts of society. Someone that's not the, the, the person that everyone strives to be. Someone that's treated poorly because of their birth order or, or their nationality or their gender, right? The marginalized people in society. So he takes a marginalized child and he says, 
if you welcome this little child, you welcome me. I think of um, in extreme examples today, and, and, and I don't like extreme examples because often I think they skew our understandings of Jesus' just honest and real principles for our lives. But I will give an extreme um, example initially here. Some of you might know the story of Mother Teresa, um, a nun who gave her life to children, orphans, and, and widows, to HIV patients, and so many people in India. She gave her life to it. For most of her life, she slept on uh, just a, um, a cot in the hottest and most uncomfortable room in her convent. And she chose that room. Over now, there's 4,500 nuns under the order that she began, um, and she's passed. Um, but 4,500 nuns continued the tradition that she began. In her, in her convent, she chose the room that was above the kitchen, that was going to be the hottest, that would be baked the most by the sun. She slept without a bed. See, because Mother Teresa wasn't about silly posturpedic is going to make my life better. She realized something that Jesus is after right here, that there is something beautiful and special in reaching out in the lives of marginalized people in our society. In fact, if you read about Mother Teresa's bio, there's some controversy on this, so don't quote me as authority. You do more research than I did on it, okay? Um, but some would say that she struggled with her faith over the course of her life, and she's, she was honest about it. There was times in her life when she, she would say, I, I'm, I don't experience God right now. And yet she never wavered from her realization that in the lives of hurting and marginalized people, God was there. Like she, she understood in a beautiful way what Jesus was doing. Now here's always the risk when we use these grandiose illustrations like Mother Teresa. We're all sitting here today thinking, I don't think I'm going to move to India right now. And we got a whole list of reasons why not to, right? And, and, and we all live in different walks of life that that is not always the practical application. However, I absolutely believe um, that in each of our lives, each day of the next week, we have opportunity to touch the life of a marginalized person. We have opportunity to show love to someone that's unlovable. We have opportunity to share a meal with, to invite to our table, whether literally or figuratively, someone in desperate need of Jesus' love. And here's Jesus' promise when we engage marginalized people. When you welcome them, you welcome Jesus. And when you welcome Jesus, you welcome God into your lives. And so there's this, there's this beautiful sense in which we begin to realize that um, uh, as, as Christians, we believe in God, and, and I know something of God. And some of us take it a step further, and so on Sunday mornings, I go to church to learn more about God and to worship God, and some of us go a little bit further, and we say, and I study my Bible, and I spend time in prayer, and in all these ways, we learn about God. But I want to propose that today in this text, and Jesus said something revolutionary to his disciples that didn't make any sense, and, and we're going to challenge to, to pull it in today as well, um, to understand it and, and to implement it. But he says... You welcome me when you welcome a hurting and a marginalized person. That, that we can be in the presence, that we can know more of God in the way that we love and the way that we serve. And, and I believe it to be true. 
If you've ever been on a, a short-term mission trip, you've gone and you've helped build a house and, and, or you've helped dig a well and, and we've done wonderful things and we've blessed the lives of hurting people, but the story over and over again as you come back and share with your church your testimony is, I feel like I helped there, but I gained so much from it. Because there's something about investing in people, in being the hands and feet of Jesus and loving people that invites us into a deeper understanding and experience of our Savior, Jesus. You know, um, Paul uh, is an author of much of the New Testament. He's the missionary to the Gentiles. So as, as Christianity spread beyond the Jewish nation... Paul was traveling on missionary journeys, sharing uh, this message of good news, this gospel with people. And he planted a church in a, in a town called Philippi, and he would write back to the towns and, uh, and, and, and update them and correct them and teach them and, uh, and, and have conversation with them. And we have quite a number of these letters in the New Testament. The, the, the letters are these letters, uh, many of them from Paul, to churches that he had planted. And he writes this to the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, so like Jesus is saying, uh, welcome the children, the marginalized, look to the interests of other people. And, he, and, he, and then he shows us that Jesus doesn't just teach that we need to show love and serve needing people, but instead Jesus demonstrated it, and that we get to model ourselves after that. So as he continues in verse 5 of Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And let's just understand, it doesn't mean understood. So though we believe in a triune God, a Father, Son, and the Spirit, right, who are one, and yet manifest themselves in different ways. Um, Here he says, uh, Jesus being in very nature God, a part of God, he didn't consider that equality something to be clung to, to be grasped, to be held onto. And so instead of taking and playing his God card over and over in life, instead he took on nature of a servant, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. See, Paul tells the story to the Philippian people in different terms and very practical ways that Jesus is telling to his disciples on this day. He says, realize this, Jesus lived his life as a servant. If anyone had a right to play the God card and say, I don't deserve to suffer and I don't, I don't deserve to be a servant, I, I deserve to be the king hailed in this community, that was Jesus, not us. And, and yet Jesus didn't cling to that, but instead he made himself a servant and God exalted him. See, there's that beautiful conclusion, the same that Jesus is drawing here, that the least among us will be the greatest, that as we serve, God will exalt us. And I believe that's in this life and in the next. And then finally, the last piece of our, our, sec- of our passage that I thought about leaving off, but it's here for a reason immediately after this story. Um, so, so Master John said to Jesus, we saw someone else driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop it. 
right? And, and Jesus says, no, don't stop him. If he's not against us, then he's for us. And here's, this, here's the wild thing about that, that teaching and, and what, the reason it's paired here. It's because when we are seeking power and greatness in Christianity, this is how we will treat the world around us. It'll divide us amongst denominations and we'll say, no, they're them and we are us and we have it right and they shouldn't be doing that and they're not real and they're not right. See, when we're, when we're seeking greatness, it totally shifts the way we think about people and the world around us. But Jesus says, no, the least will be the greatest. Welcome children and you will know more of me. You will welcome me. So it leaves us with this. What does it look like to engage marginalized people in our lives today? What does it look like to help the hurting, to love those that need a friend, to be there for someone who needs a shoulder to cry on? A couple weeks ago, I was coming out of a restaurant, and across the street there was a guy standing there with his guitar. And uh, it was a strange scene. Uh, there, there was something just a little bit off about it all. He's just standing there, not playing, not singing, not moving, not near a car. He's just standing in the parking lot across the street. And, um, uh, you know, he, he looked like he might be a homeless guy or certainly someone struggling. And, and uh, for whatever reason, I just felt like I needed to go and, and have a conversation with this guy. So I went over there and um, uh, began a conversation and, uh, you know, said, so... Uh, you like to play guitar? Tell me about it. And uh, he said, "Yeah." And, and, and I said, "Hey, would you would you play something? I'd love to love to hear you play something." And he said, "Well, it's a piece that I wrote. It's kind of long, so you'll have to kind of bear with me." And I said, "That's awesome." And this guy sang a song to me about um, I won't be a cowboy and I won't be this and I won't be that. And it occurred to me upon reflection that he never he never found in that song what he will be. That his entire song was about all the things, maybe that he's been labeled in life, I don't know, but all the things that I will not be. And, and so I, I hung out with this guy, and shortly after we found a common interest, uh, Nirvana, a band you might have heard of. Um, and Maybe not currently, but when I was in high school, I knew Nirvana, and he really liked Nirvana. So we opened the doors of the car, and we played Nirvana for the whole neighborhood to hear. And, uh, and we just hung out for a few minutes. Um, and, uh, and it was this beautiful opportunity where in the end, what I like to do in those situations is um, just ask people, hey, is there anything that you need? And when they answer that question, I say, great, let's, let's take care of that right now. Um, that's, just, that's just how I'd like to deal with you know, those people and, and, and situations like that. And I asked him, is there anything you need? And he said, yes, cigarettes. And I said, ah, man, I just can't help you there. Um, and, uh, and, and, but what, what I think the opportunity was that day um, was to love one of the least, right? To, just to, to validate, just, just to care for a person who was hurting, that he could know people care. And, and here's the thing, it leaves a lasting impact on me. Right? Well, I got to bless him and encourage him and have a conversation with a guy that maybe no one else stopped for that day. I hope that was an encouragement. I hope God did something through that interaction. However, I know that God left the lasting impact on me in my time spent with him. And that's what Jesus wants to understand, that we can learn about God in the interactions we have and in the ways that we love the people around us. So I'll go slowly here as we close out.
I want you to think for a moment about people in your life. Is it a coworker? Is it a relative that you don't talk to often? Is it a neighbor that just moved into the area? Is it someone of another nationality that lives down the street? Is it a widow uh, that, that, that you know in the area? Right? It could be so many different people and things. But who's someone in your life that, that maybe this week we can show some love to someone around us? And in welcoming them to the table and inviting them into conversation and relationship, that we could welcome Jesus into our lives and that, we'd, that we could know a little bit more of him. I'd invite you to that, to that beautiful blessing and opportunity that we can know Jesus in the face of a child, in the face of a hurting people, that we can engage him in that space. Let's pray about that. Father, we thank you for this day and for the time we have together. Father, we thank you for your word and Jesus and just his radical teachings uh, that can be so transformational in life. And so today, Father, I pray that you will um, reshape our hearts uh, to a degree, uh, to to whatever degree you will, Father. Um, Maybe it's radically, but Father, will you shape our hearts to look for opportunity to help hurting people and to love people who are in need, that are on the outskirts of our society. Father, that, that we can be a blessing, that we can be the blessing that you have been for us. And also, Father, that we can know more of you and that we can experience you in the faces of people in our community. Father, we thank you for that hope and, and the beautiful message that that is. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.